0: chapter 2 of the red inn by honoré de balzac this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter 2 thought and act toward the end of Venomier year 7 a republican period which in the present day corresponds to october 20th 1799 two young men leaving bonn in the early morning had reached by nightfall the environs of Andernach, a small town standing on the left bank of the Rhine, a few leagues from Koblenz. At that time the French army, commanded by Augereau, was maneuvering before the Austrians, who then occupied the right bank of the river. The headquarters of the Republican division was at Koblenz, and one of the demi-brigades belonging to Augereau's corps was stationed at Andernach. The two travelers were Frenchmen, at sight of their uniforms, blue mixed with white, and faced with red velvet, their sabres, and above all their hats, covered with a green varnished cloth, and adorned with a tricolor plume. Even the German peasants had recognized army surgeons, a body of men of science and merit liked for the most part, Not only in our own army, but also in the countries invaded by our troops. At this period, many sons of good families, taken from their medical studies by the recent conscription law due to General Jordan, had naturally preferred to continue their studies on the battlefield rather than be restricted to mere military duty, little in keeping with their early education and their peaceful destinies. Men of science, Pacific yet useful, these young men did an actual good in the midst of so much misery, and formed a bond of sympathy with other men of science in the various countries through which the cruel civilization of the Republic passed. The two young men were each provided with a pass and a commission as assistant surgeon, signed Coste and Bernadotte and they were on their way to join the Demi-Brigade, to which they were attached. Both belonged to moderately rich families in Beauvais, a town in which the gentle manners and loyalty of the provinces are transmitted as a species of birthright. Attracted to the theater of war, before the date at which they were required to begin their functions, they had traveled by diligence to Strasbourg, though maternal prudence had only allowed them a slender sum of money they thought themselves rich in possessing a few louis an actual treasure in those days when assignats were reaching their lowest depreciation and gold was worth far more than silver the two young surgeons above twenty years of age at the most yielded themselves up to the poesy of their situation with all the enthusiasm of youth between Strasbourg and bonn They had visited the electorate and the banks of the Rhine as artists, philosophers, and observers. When a man's destiny is scientific, he is, at their age, a being who is truly many-sided. Even in making love or in traveling, an assistant surgeon should be gathering up the rudiments of his fortune or his coming fame. The two young had therefore given themselves wholly to that deep admiration which must affect all educated men on seeing the banks of the Rhine, and the scenery of Sabia between Mayen and Cologne, a strong, rich, vigorously varied nature, filled with feudal memories, ever fresh and verdant, yet retaining at all points the imprints of fire and sword. Louis Fourteenth and Turinay have cauterized that beautiful land, Here and there certain ruins bear witness to the pride, or rather the foresight of the king of Versailles, who caused to be pulled down the ancient castles that once adorned this part of Germany. Looking at this marvelous country, covered with forests, where the picturesque charm of the Middle Ages abounds, though in ruins, we are able to conceive the German genius, its reverie, its mysticism. The stay of the two friends at Bonn had the double purpose of science and pleasure. The grand hospital of the Gallo-Batavian army and of Auguro's division was established in the very palace of the elector. These assistant surgeons of recent date went there to see old comrades, to present their letters of recommendation to their medical chiefs, and to familiarize themselves with the first aspects of their profession. There, as elsewhere, they got rid of a few prejudices to which we cling so fondly in favor of the beauties of our native land. Surprised by the aspect of the columns of marble which adorned the Electoral Palace, they went about admiring the grandiose effects of German architecture, and finding everywhere new treasures, both modern and antique. From time to time, the highways along which the two friends rode at leisure on their way to Andernach led them over the crests of some granite hill that was higher than the rest. Thence, through a clearing of the forest or cleft in the rocky barrier, they caught sudden glimpses of the Rhine, framed in stone or festooned with vigorous vegetation. The valleys, the forest paths, the trees exhaled that autumnal odor, which induced to reverie. The wooded summits were beginning to gild and to take on the warm brown tones significant of age the leaves were falling but the skies were still azure and the dry roads lay like yellow lines along the landscape just then illuminated by the oblique rays of the setting sun at a mile and a half from Andernach, the two friends walked their horses in silence as if no war were devastating this beautiful land while they followed a path made for the goats across the lofty walls of bluish granite between which foams the rhine presently they descended by one of the declivities of the gorge at the foot of which is placed the little town seated coquettishly on the banks of the river and offering a convenient port to mariners germany is a beautiful country cried one of the young men who was named prosper magnan at the moment when he caught sight of the painted houses of Andernach, pressed together like eggs in a basket, and separated only by trees, gardens, and flowers. Then he admired for a moment the pointed roofs with their projecting eaves, the wooden staircases, the galleries of a thousand peaceful dwellings, and the vessels swaying to the waves in the port. At the moment when Monsieur Hermann uttered the name of Prosper Magnan, my opposite neighbor seized the decanter, poured out a glass of water, and emptied it at a draught. This movement having attracted my attention, I thought I noticed a slight trembling of the hand and a moisture on the brow of the capitalist. What is that man's name? I asked my neighbor. Téléfer, she replied. Do you feel ill? I said to him, observing that this strange personage was turning pale. Not at all, he said with a polite gesture of thanks. I am listening, he added with a nod to the guests, who were all simultaneously looking at him. I have forgotten, said Monsieur Hermann, the name of the other young man, but the confidences which Prosper Magnan subsequently made to me enabled me to know that his companion was dark rather thin and jovial i will if you please call him wilhelm to give greater clearness to the tale i am about to tell you the worthy german resumed his narrative after having without the smallest regard for romanticism and local colour baptized the young French surgeon with a Teutonic name. By the time the two young men reached Andernach, the night was dark, presuming that they would lose much time in looking for their chiefs and obtaining from them a military billet in a town already full of soldiers. They resolved to spend their last night of freedom at an inn standing some two or three hundred feet from Andernach, the rich colour of which Embellished by the fires of the setting sun, they had greatly admired from the summit of the hill above the town. Painted entirely red, this inn produced a most piquant effect in the landscape. Whether by detaching itself from the general background of the town, or by contrasting its scarlet sides with the verdure of the surrounding foliage and the grey-blue tints of the water, this house owed its name, the Red Inn. To this external decoration, imposed upon it no doubt from time immemorial, by the caprice of its founder, a mercantile superstition, natural enough to the different possessors of the building, far-famed among the sailors of the Rhine, had made them scrupulous to preserve the title. Hearing the sound of horses' hooves, the master of the Red Inn came out upon the threshold of his door by heavens gentlemen he cried a little later and you'd have had to sleep beneath the stars like a good many more of your compatriots who are bivouacking on this other side of andernach here every room is occupied if you want to sleep in a good bed i have only my own room to offer you as for your horses i can litter them down in a corner of the courtyard The stable is full of people. Do these gentlemen come from France?" he added, after a slight pause. From Bonn, cried Prosper, and we have eaten nothing since morning. Oh, as to provisions, said the innkeeper, nodding his head. People come to the Red Inn for their wedding feast from thirty miles around. YOU SHALL HAVE A PRINCELY MEAL, A RHINE FISH, MORE I NEED NOT SAY. AFTER CONFIDING THEIR WEARY STEEDS TO THE CARE OF THE LANDLORD, WHO vainly CALLED TO HIS HOSTLER, THE TWO YOUNG MEN ENTERED THE PUBLIC ROOM OF THE INN. THICK WHITE CLOUDS EXHALED BY A NUMEROUS COMPANY OF SMOKERS PREVENTED THEM FROM AT FIRST RECOGNIZING THE PERSONS WITH WHOM THEY WERE THROWN, BUT AFTER SITTING A WHILE NEAR THE table with the patience practised by philosophical travellers who know the inutility of making a fuss they distinguished through the vapours of tobacco the inevitable accessories of a german inn the stove the clock the pots of beer the long pipes and here and there the eccentric physiognomies of jews or germans and the weather-beaten faces of mariners the epaulets of several french officers were glittering through the mist the clank of spurs and sabres echoed incessantly from the brick floors some were playing cards others argued or held their tongues and ate drank or walked about one stout little woman wearing a black velvet cap blue and silver stomacher pincushion bunch of keys silver buckles braided hair all distinctive signs of the mistress of a german inn a costume which has been so often depicted in coloured prints that it is too common to describe here well this wife of the innkeeper kept the two friends alternately patient and impatient with remarkable ability little by little the noise decreased the various travellers retired to their rooms the clouds of smoke dispersed when places were set for the two young men and the classic carp of the rhine appeared upon the table eleven o'clock was striking and the room was empty the silence of the night enabled the young surgeons to hear vaguely the noise their horses made in eating their provender the murmur of the waters of the rhine together with those indefinable sounds which always enliven an inn when filled with persons preparing to go to bed doors and windows are opened and shut voices murmur vague words and a few interpolations echo along the passages. At this moment of silence and tumult the two Frenchmen and their landlord, who was boasting of Andernach, his inn, his cookery, the Rhine wines, the Republican army, and his wife, were all three listening with a sort of interest to the hoarse cries of sailors in a boat which appeared to be coming to the wharf. The innkeeper, Familiar, no doubt, with the guttural shouts of the boatmen, went out hastily, but presently returned, conducting a short, stout man, behind whom walked two sailors, carrying a heavy valise and several packages. When these things were deposited in the room, the short man took the valise and placed it beside him as he seated himself, without ceremony, at the same table as the surgeon's.
1: "'Go and sleep in your boat.' He said to
0: the boatman,
1: As the inn is full, considering all things, that is the best.
0: Monsieur, said the landlord to the newcomer, these are all the provisions I have left, pointing to the supper served to the two Frenchmen. I haven't so much as another crust of bread, nor a bone.
1: No sauerkraut.
0: Not enough to put in my wife's thimble, as I had the honor to tell you just now. You can have no bed but the chair on which you are sitting, and no other chamber than this public room. At these words the little man cast upon the landlord, the room, and the two Frenchmen a look in which caution and alarm were equally expressed. Here, said Monsieur Hermann, interrupting himself. I ought to tell you that we have never known the real name nor the history of this man. His paper showed that he came from Aix-la-Chapelle. He called himself Wallenfer, and said that he owned a rather extensive pen manufactory in the suburbs of Newide. Like all the manufacturers of that region, he wore a sort coat of common cloth, waistcoat and breeches of dark green, velveteen stout boots and a broad leather belt his face was round his manners frank and cordial but during the evening he seemed unable to disguise altogether some secret apprehension or possibly some anxious care the innkeeper's opinion has always been that this german merchant was fleeing his country later i heard that his manufactory had been burned by one of those unfortunate chances so frequent in time of war in spite of its anxious expression the man's face showed great kindliness his features were handsome and the whiteness of his stout throat was well set off by a black cravat a fact which wilhelm showed jestingly to prosper here monsieur Telefer drank another glass of water prosper courteously proposed that the merchant should share their supper and Wallenfer accepted the offer without ceremony, like a man who feels himself able to return a civility. He placed his valise on the floor and put his feet on it, took off his hat and gloves, and removed a pair of pistols from his belt, the landlord having by this time set a knife and fork for him. The three guests began to satisfy their appetites in silence. The atmosphere of this room was hot and the flies were so numerous that Prosper requested the landlord to open the window, looking toward the outer gate, so as to change the air. This window was barricaded by an iron bar, the two ends of which were inserted into holes made in the window casings. For greater security, two bolts were screwed to each shutter. Prosper accidentally noticed the manner in which the landlord managed these obstacles, and opened the window. As I am now speaking of localities, this is the place to describe to you the interior arrangements of the inn, for, on an accurate knowledge of the premises, depends an understanding of my tale. The public room, in which the three persons I have named to you were sitting, had two outer doors. One opened on the main road to Andernach, which skirts the Rhine. In front of the inn was a little wharf, to which the boat hired by the merchant for his journey was moored. The other door opened upon the courtyard of the inn. This courtyard was surrounded by very high walls, and was full for the time being of cattle and horses, the stables being occupied by human beings. The great gate leading into this courtyard had been so carefully barricaded that to save time the landlord had brought the merchant and sailors into the public room through the door opening on the roadway. After having opened the window, as requested by Prosper Magnin, he closed this door, slipped the iron bars into their places, and ran the bolts. The landlord's room, where the two young surgeons were to sleep, adjoined the public room, and was separated by a somewhat thin partition from the kitchen, where the landlord and his wife intended, probably, to pass the night. The servant woman had left the premises to find a lodging in some crib or hayloft. It is therefore easy to see that the kitchen The landlord's chamber and the public room were, to some extent, isolated from the rest of the house. In the courtyard were two large dogs, whose deep-toned barking showed vigilant and easily roused guardians. What silence, and what a beautiful night, said Wilhelm, looking at the sky through the window as the landlord was fastening the door. The lapping of the river against the wharf was the only sound to be heard. Messieurs, said the merchant,
1: permit me to offer you a few bottles of wine to wash down the carp. We'll ease the fatigues of the day by drinking. From your manner and the state of your clothes, I judge that you have made, like me, a
0: good bit of a journey to-day. The two friends accepted, and the landlord went out by a door through the kitchen to his cellar, SITUATED, NO DOUBT, UNDER THIS PORTION OF THE BUILDING, WHEN FIVE VENERABLE BOTTLES WHICH HE PRESENTLY BROUGHT BACK WITH HIM APPEARED ON THE TABLE, THE WIFE BROUGHT IN THE REST OF THE SUPPER, SHE GAVE TO THE DISHES AND TO THE ROOM GENERALLY, THE GLANCE OF A MISTRESS, AND THEN, SURE OF HAVING ATTENDED TO ALL THE wants OF THE TRAVELERS, SHE RETURNED TO THE KITCHEN. THE FOUR MEN, FOR THE LANDLORD WAS INVITED TO DRINK, DID NOT HEAR HER GO TO BED but later, during the intervals of silence which came into their talk, certain strongly accentuated snores made them more sonorous by the thin planks of the loft in which she had ensconced herself, made the guests laugh, and also the husband. Towards midnight, when nothing remained on the table but biscuits, cheese, dried fruit, and good wine, the guests, chiefly the young Frenchman, became communicative, the latter talked of their homes, their studies, and of the war. The conversation grew lively. Prosper Magnan brought a few tears to the merchant's eyes, when with the frankness and naivete of a good and tender nature, he talked of what his mother must be doing at that hour, while he was sitting drinking on the banks of the Rhine. "'I can see her,' he said, reading her prayers before she goes to bed she won't forget me she is certain to say to herself my poor prosper i wonder where he is now if she has won a few sous from her neighbors your mother perhaps he added nudging wilhelm's elbow she'll go and put them in the great red earthenware pot where she is accumulating a sum sufficient to buy the thirty acres adjoining her little estate at Lecheville. Those thirty acres are worth at least sixty thousand francs, such fine fields. Ah, if I had them, I'd live all my days at Lecheville without other ambition. How my father used to long for those thirty acres, and the pretty brook which winds through the meadows, but he died without ever being able to buy them. Many's the time I've played there. Monsieur Wallenfer, haven't you also your Hock-Eret in Votis? asked Wilhelm
1: yes monsieur but it came to pass and
0: now the good man was silent and did not finish his sentence as for me said the landlord whose face was rather flushed i bought a field last spring which i have been wanting for ten years they talked thus like men whose tongues are loosened by wine and they each took that friendly liking to the others of which we are never stingy on a journey, so that when the time came to separate for the night, Wilhelm offered his bed to the merchant. You can accept it without hesitation, he said, for I can sleep with Prosper. It won't be the first nor the last time either. You are our elder, and we ought to honor age. Bah, said the landlord, my wife's bed has several mattresses, Take one off and put it on the floor. So saying, he went and shut the window, making all the noise that prudent operation demanded. I accept, said the merchant. In fact, I will admit, he added, lowering his voice and looking at the two Frenchmen,
1: that I desired it. My boatmen seemed to me suspicious. I am not sorry to spend the night with two brave young men, two French soldiers for between ourselves I have a hundred thousand francs in gold and
0: diamonds in my valise. The friendly caution with which this imprudent confidence was received by the two young men seemed to reassure the German. The landlord assisted in taking off one of the mattresses, and when all was arranged for the best, he bade them good night and went off to bed. The merchant and the surgeons laughed over the nature of their pillows. Prosper put his case of surgical instruments and that of Wilhelm under the end of his mattress to raise it and supply the place of a bolster, which was lacking. Wallenfer, as a measure of precaution, put his valise under his pillow. We shall both sleep on our fortune, said Prosper, you on your gold, I on my instruments. It remains to be seen whether my instruments will ever bring me the gold you have now acquired you may hope so said the merchant work and
1: honesty can do everything
0: have patience however wallenfair and wilhelm were soon asleep whether it was that his bed on the floor was hard or that his great fatigue was a cause of sleeplessness or that some fatal influence affected his soul it is certain that Prosper Magnan continued awake. His thoughts unconsciously took an evil turn. His mind dwelt exclusively on the hundred thousand francs which lay beneath the merchant's pillow. To Prosper Magnan, one hundred thousand francs was a vast and ready-made fortune. He began to employ it in a hundred different ways. He made castles in the air, such as we all make with eager delight during the moments preceding sleep an hour when images rise in our minds confusedly and often in the silence of the night thought acquires some magical power he gratified his mother's wishes he bought the thirty acres of meadowland he married a young lady of bouvaux to whom his present want of fortune forbade him to aspire with a hundred thousand francs he planned a lifetime of happiness he saw himself prosperous the father of a family rich Respected in his province, and possibly mayor of Beauvais. His brain heated. He searched for a means to turn his fictions to reality. He began with extraordinary ardour to plan a crime theoretically. While fancying the death of the merchant, he saw distinctly the gold and the diamonds. His eyes were dazzled by them. His heart throbbed. Deliberation was undoubtedly already crime fascinated by that mass of gold he intoxicated himself morally by murderous arguments he asked himself if that poor german had any need to live he supposed the case of his never having existed in short he planned the crime in a manner to secure himself impunity the other bank of the river was occupied by the austrian army below the windows lay a boat and boatman he would cut the throat of that man throw the body into the Rhine and escape with the valise. Gold would buy the boatman, and he could reach the Austrians. He went so far as to calculate the professional ability he had reached in the use of instruments, so as to cut through his victim's throat, without leaving him the chance of a single cry. Here, Monsieur Telefer wiped his forehead and drank a little water. Prosper rose slowly, making no noise, certain of having waked no one. He dressed himself and went into the public room. There, with the fatal intelligence a man suddenly finds, on some occasions within him, with that power of tact and will which is never lacking to prisoners or to criminals in whatever they undertake, he unscrewed the iron bars, slipped them from their places without the slightest noise, placed them against the wall, And opened the shutters, leaning heavily upon their hinges to keep them from creaking. The moon was shedding its pale, pure light upon the scene, and he was thus enabled to faintly see into the room where Wilhelm and Wallenfair were sleeping. There, he told me, he stood still for a moment. The throbbing of his heart was so strong, so deep, so sonorous, and he was terrified. He feared he could not act with coolness. His hands trembled, the soles of his feet seemed planted on red-hot coal, but the execution of his plan was accompanied by such apparent good luck that he fancied he saw a species of predestination in this favor bestowed upon him by fate. He opened the window, returned to the bedroom, took his case of instruments, and selected the one most suitable to accomplish the crime. When I stood by the bed, he said to me, I commended myself mechanically to God. At the moment when he raised his arm, collecting all his strength, he heard a voice as it were within him. He thought he saw a light. He flung the instrument on his own bed and fled into the next room and stood before the window. There he conceived the utmost horror of himself. Feeling his virtue weak, fearing still to succumb to the spell that was upon him, he sprang out upon the road and walked along the bank of the Rhine, pacing up and down like a sentinel before the inn. Sometimes he went as far as Andernach in his hurried tramp, often his feet led him up the slope he had descended on his way to the inn, and sometimes he lost sight of the inn and the window he had left open behind him. His object, he said, was to weary himself, and so find sleep. But as he walked beneath the cloudless skies, beholding the stars, affected perhaps by the purer air of night and the melancholy lapping of the water, he fell into a reverie which brought him back by degrees to sane moral thoughts. Reason at last dispersed completely his momentary frenzy, the teachings of his education, its religious precepts, but above all, so he told me, the remembrance of his simple life beneath the parental roof drove out his wicked thoughts. When he returned to the inn after a long meditation, to which he abandoned himself on the bank of the Rhine, resting his elbow on a rock, he could, he said to me, not have slept, but have watched untempted beside millions of gold. At the moment when his virtue rose proudly and vigorously from the struggle, He knelt down, with a feeling of ecstasy and happiness, and thanked God. He felt happy, light-hearted, content, as on the day of his first communion, when he thought himself worthy of the angels, because he had passed one day without sinning, in thought or word or deed. He returned to the inn and closed the window without fearing to make a noise, and went to bed at once. His moral and physical lassitude was certain to bring him sleep. In a very short time after laying his head on his mattress, he fell into that first fantastic somnolence, which precedes the deepest sleep. The senses then grew numb, and life is abolished by degrees. Thoughts are incomplete, and the last quivering of our consciousness seems like a sort of reverie. How heavy the air is, he thought. I seem to be breathing a moist vapor. He explained this vaguely to himself by the difference which must exist between the atmosphere of the close room and the purer air by the river, but presently he heard a periodical noise, something like that made by drops of water falling from a robinet into a fountain. Obeying a feeling of panic terror, he was about to rise and call the innkeeper and waken Wallenfer and Wilhelm but he suddenly remembered, alas, to his great misfortune, the tall wooden clock. He fancied the sound was that of a pendulum, and he fell asleep with that confused and indistinct perception. "'Do you want some water, Monsieur Talafer?' said the master of the house, observing that the banker was mechanically pouring from an empty decanter." M. Hermann continued his narrative after the slight pause occasioned by this interruption. The next morning Prosper Magnan was awakened by a great noise. He seemed to hear piercing cries, and he felt that violent shuddering of the nerves, which we suffer when on awaking we continue to feel a painful impression begun in sleep. A physiological fact then takes place within us, a start. To use the common expression, which has never been sufficiently observed, though it contains very curious phenomena for science. This terrible agony, produced possibly by the too sudden reunion of our two natures separated during sleep, is usually transient, but in the poor young surgeon's case it lasted and even increased, causing him suddenly the most awful horror as he beheld a pool of blood between Wallenfer's bed and his own mattress. The head of the unfortunate German lay on the ground. His body was still on the bed. All its blood had flowed out by the neck. Seeing the eyes still open but fixed, seeing the blood which had stained his sheets and even his hands, recognizing his own surgical instruments beside him, Prosper Magnan fainted and fell into the pool of Wallenfer's blood it was he said to me the punishment of my thoughts when he recovered consciousness he was in the public room seated on a chair surrounded by french soldiers and in the presence of a curious and observing crowd he gazed stupidly at a republican officer engaged in taking the testimony of several witnesses and in writing down, no doubt, the process verbal. He recognized the landlord, his wife, the two boatmen, and the servant of the Red Inn, the surgical instrument which the murderer had used. Here Monsieur Telefer coughed, drew out his handkerchief to blow his nose, and wiped his forehead. These perfectly natural motions were noticed by me only. The other guests sat with their eyes fixed on Monsieur Hermann, to whom they were listening with a sort of avidity. The purveyor leaned his elbow on the table, put his head in his right hand, and gazed fixedly at Herman. From that moment he showed no other sign of emotion or interest, but his face remained passive and ghastly, as it was when I first saw him playing with the stopper of the decanter. The surgical instrument which the murderer had used was on the table with a case containing the rest of the instruments, together with Prosper's purse and papers. The gaze of the assembled crowd turned alternately from these convicting articles to the young man, who seemed to be dying, and whose half-extinguished eyes apparently saw nothing. A confused murmur which was heard without proved the presence of a crowd, drawn to the neighborhood of the inn by the news of the crime, and also perhaps by a desire to see the murderer the step of the sentries placed beneath the windows of the public room and the rattle of their accoutrements could be heard above the talk of the populace but the inn was closed and the courtyard was empty and silent incapable of sustaining the glance of the officer who was gathering his testimony prosper magnan suddenly felt his hand pressed by a man and he raised his eyes to see who his protector could be in that crowd of enemies he recognized by his uniform the Surgeon Major of the Demi-Brigade, then stationed at Andernach. The glance of that man was so piercing, so stern, that the poor young fellow shuddered and suffered his head to fall on the back of his chair. A soldier put vinegar to his nostrils, and he recovered consciousness. Nevertheless, his haggard eyes were so devoid of life and intelligence that the surgeon said to the officer, after feeling Prosper's pulse, Captain, it is impossible to question the man at this moment. Very well, take him away, replied the captain, interrupting the surgeon, and addressing a corporal who stood behind the prisoner. You cursed coward, he went on, speaking to Prosper in a low voice. Try at least to walk firmly before these German curs, and save the honor of the Republic. This address seemed to wake up Prosper Magnan, who rose and made a few steps forward, but when the door was opened, and he felt the fresh air, and saw the crowd before him, he staggered, and his knees gave way under him. This coward of his sawbones deserves a dozen deaths. Get on, cried the two soldiers who had him in charge, lending him their arms to support him. There he is, oh, the villain, the coward. Here he is! There he is! These cries seemed to be uttered by a single voice, the tumultuous voice of the crowd, which followed him with insults and swelled at every step. During the passage from the inn to the prison, the noise made by the tramping of the crowd and the soldiers, the murmur of the various colloquies, the sight of the sky, the coolness of the air, the aspect of Andernach, and the shimmering of the waters of the Rhine, these impressions came to the soul of the young man vaguely confusedly torpidly like all the sensations he had felt since his waking there were moments he said when he thought he was no longer living i was then in prison enthusiastic as we all are at twenty years of age i wished to defend my country and i commanded a company of free lances which i had organized in the vicinity of andernach A few days before these events, I had fallen plump during the night into a French detachment of eight hundred men. We were two hundred at most. My scouts had sold me. I was thrown into the prison of Andernach, and they talked of shooting me as a warning to intimidate others. The French talked also of reprisals. My father, however, obtained a reprieve for three days to give him time to see General Augereau, whom he knew, and ask for my pardon, which was granted. Thus it happened that I saw Prosper Magnin, when he was brought to the prison. He inspired me with the profoundest pity. Though pale, distracted, and covered with blood, his whole countenance had a character of truth and innocence, which struck me forcibly. To me his long fair hair and clear blue eyes seemed German, a true image of my hapless country. I felt he was a victim and not a murderer. At the moment when he passed beneath my window, he chanced to cast about him the painful melancholy smile of an insane man who suddenly recovers for a time a fleeting gleam of reason. That smile was assuredly not the smile of a murderer. When I saw the jailer, I questioned him about his new prisoner. He has not spoken since I put him in his cell, answered the man. He is sitting down with his head in his hands and is either sleeping or reflecting about his crime. The French say he'll get his reckoning tomorrow morning and be shot in twenty-four hours. That evening I stopped short under the window of the prison during the short time I was allowed To take exercise in the prison yard. We talked together, and he frankly related to me his strange affair, replying with evident truthfulness to my various questions. After that first conversation, I no longer doubted his innocence. I asked and obtained the favour of staying several hours with him. I saw him again at intervals, and the poor lad let me in without concealment to all his thoughts. He believed himself both innocent and guilty, remembering the horrible temptation which he had had the strength to resist. He feared he might have done in sleep, in a fit of somnambulism, the crime he had dreamed of awake. But your companion, I said to him, oh, he cried eagerly, Wilhelm is incapable of—he did not even finish his sentence. At that warm defense, so full of youth and manly virtue, I pressed his hand. When he woke, continued Prosper, he must have been terrified and lost his head. No doubt he fled. Without waking you, I said, then surely your defense is easy. Wollenfur's valise cannot have been stolen. Suddenly he burst into tears. Oh, yes, he cried. I am innocent. I have not killed a man. I remember my dreams. I was playing at base with my schoolmates. I couldn't have cut off the head of a man while I dreamed I was running then in spite of these gleams of hope which gave him at times some calmness he felt a remorse which crushed him he had beyond all question raised his arm to kill that man he judged himself and he felt that his heart was not innocent after committing that crime in his mind and yet i am good he cried oh my poor mother perhaps at this moment she is cheerfully playing boston with the neighbors in her little tapestry salon if she knew that i had raised my hand to murder a man oh she would die of it and i am in prison accused of committing that crime if i have not killed a man I have certainly killed my mother. Saying these words, he wept no longer. He was seized by that short and rapid madness, known to the men of Picardy. He sprang to the wall, and if I had not caught him, he would have dashed out his brains against it. Wait for your trial, I said. You are innocent. You will certainly be acquitted. Think of your mother. My mother he cried frantically. She will hear of the accusation before she hears anything else. It is always so in little towns, and the shock will kill her. Besides, I am not innocent. Must I tell you the whole truth? I feel that I have lost the virginity of my conscience. After that terrible avowal, He sat down, crossed his arms on his breast, bowed his head upon it, gazing gloomily on the ground. At this instant, the turnkey came to ask me to return to my room, grieved to leave my companion at a moment when his discouragement was so deep. I pressed him in my arms, with friendship, saying, Have patience, all may yet go well, if the voice of an honest man can still your doubts believe that i esteem you and trust you accept my friendship and rest upon my heart if you cannot find peace in your own the next morning a corporal's guard came to fetch the young surgeon at nine o'clock hearing the noise made by the soldiers i stationed myself at my window as the prisoner crossed the courtyard he cast his eyes up to me never shall i forget that look full of thoughts presentiments resignation and i know not what sad melancholy grace it was as it were a silent but intelligible last will by which a man bequeathed his lost existence to his only friend the night must have been very hard very solitary for him and yet perhaps the pallor of his face expressed a stoicism gathered from some new sense of self-respect Perhaps he felt that his remorse had purified him, and believed that he had blotted out his fault by his anguish and his shame. He now walked with a firm step, and since the previous evening he had washed away the blood with which he was involuntarily stained. My hands must have dabbled in it while I slept, for I am always a restless sleeper he had said to me in tones of horrible despair. I learned that he was on his way to appear before the Council of War. The division was to march on the following morning, and the commanding officer did not wish to leave Andernach without inquiry into the crime on the spot where it had been committed. I remained in the utmost anxiety during the time the Council lasted. At last, about midday, Prosper Magnan was brought back. I was then taking my usual walk. He saw me and came and threw himself into my arms. Lost, he said, lost without hope. Here to all the world, I am a murderer. He raised his head proudly. This injustice restores to me my innocence. My life would always have been wretched. My death leaves me without reproach but is there a future the whole eighteenth century was in that sudden question he remained thoughtful tell me i said to him how you answered what did they ask you did you not relate the simple facts as you told them to me he looked at me fixedly for a moment then after that awful pause He answered with feverish excitement. First they asked me, Did you leave the inn during the night? I said yes. How? I answered, By the window. Then you must have taken great precautions. The innkeeper heard no noise. I was stupefied. The sailors said they saw me walking, first to Andernach, then to the forest i made many trips they said no doubt to bury the gold and diamonds the valise had not been found my remorse still held me dumb when i wanted to speak a pitiless voice cried out to me you meant to commit that crime all was against me even myself they asked me about my comrade and I completely exonerated him then they said to me the crime must lie between you your comrade the innkeeper and his wife this morning all the windows and doors were found securely fastened at these words continued the poor fellow i had neither voice nor strength nor soul to answer More sure of my comrade than I could be of myself. I could not accuse him. I saw that we were both thought equally guilty of the murder, and that I was considered the most clumsy. I tried to explain the crime by somnambulism, and so protect my friend. But there I rambled and contradicted myself no i am lost i read my condemnation in the eyes of my judges they smiled incredulously all is over no more uncertainty to-morrow i shall be shot i am not thinking of myself he went on after a pause but of my poor mother then he stopped looked up to heaven and shed no tears his eyes were dry and strongly convulsed frederick ah true cried bonjour hermann with an air of triumph yes the other's name was frederick frederick i remember now my neighbour touched my foot and made me a sign to look at monsieur Telefer. the former purveyor had negligently dropped his hand over his eyes but between the interstices of his fingers we thought we caught a darkling flame proceeding from them hein she said in my ear what if his name were frederick i answered with a glance which said to her silence hermann continued frederick cried the young surgeon frederick basely deserted me he must have been afraid perhaps he is still hidden in the inn for our horses were both in the courtyard this morning what an incomprehensible mystery he went on after a moment's silence somnambulism somnambulism i never had but one attack in my life that was when i was six years old must i go from this earth he cried STRIKING THE GROUND WITH HIS FOOT, CARRYING WITH ME ALL THERE IS OF FRIENDSHIP IN THE WORLD? SHALL I DIE A DOUBLE DEATH? DOUBTING A FRATERNAL LOVE BEGUN WHEN WE WERE ONLY FIVE YEARS OLD AND CONTINUED THROUGH SCHOOL AND COLLEGE. WHERE IS FREDERICK? HE WEPT. CAN IT BE THAT WE CLING MORE TO A SENTIMENT THAN TO LIFE? Let us go in, he said. I prefer to be in my cell. I do not wish to be seen weeping. I shall go courageously to death. But I cannot play the heroic at all moments. I own I regret my beautiful young life. All last night I could not sleep. I remembered the scenes of my childhood. I fancied I was running in the fields. Ah, I had a future, he said, suddenly interrupting himself. And now, twelve men, a sub-lieutenant shouting, Carry arms, aim, fire, a roll of drums, and infamy. That's my future now. Oh, there must be a god or it would all be too senseless. Then he took me in his arms, and pressed me to him with all his strength. You are the last man, the last friend to whom I can show my soul. You will be set at liberty. You will see your mother. I don't know whether you are rich or poor, but no matter, you are all the world to me. They won't fight always, Sioux Well, then, there's peace. Will you go to Beauvais, if my mother has survived the fatal news of my death? Will you find her there? Say to her the comforting words. He was innocent. She will believe you. I am going to write to her, but you must take her my last look. You must tell her... THAT YOU WERE THE LAST MAN WHOSE HAND I PRESSED. OH, SHE'LL LOVE YOU, THE POOR WOMAN, YOU MY LAST FRIEND. HERE, HE SAID, AFTER A MOMENT'S SILENCE, DURING WHICH HE WAS OVERCOME BY THE WEIGHT OF HIS RECOLLECTIONS, ALL OFFICERS AND SOLDIERS ARE UNKNOWN TO me; I AM AN OBJECT OF HORROR TO THEM. If it were not for you, my innocence would be a secret between God and myself. I swore to sacredly fulfill his last wishes. My words, the emotion I showed, touched him. Soon after that the soldiers came to take him again before the council of war. He was condemned to death. I am ignorant of the formalities that followed or accompanied this judgment nor do i know whether the young surgeon defended his life or not but he expected to be executed on the following day and he spent the night in writing to his mother we shall both be free to-day he said smiling when i went to see him next morning i am told that the general has signed your pardon i was silent and looked at him closely so as to carve his features as it were on my memory. Presently an expression of disgust crossed his face. I have been very cowardly, he said. During all last night I begged for mercy of these walls, and he pointed to the sides of his dungeon. Yes, yes, I howled with despair. I rebelled. I suffered the most Awful moral agony. I was alone. Now I think of what others will say of me. Courage is a garment to put on. I desire to go decently to death. Therefore, end of chapter two. Read by Peter Strom on the island of Tierra del Fuego on March fourteenth, two thousand nineteen.